each time that I've had the opportunity to come before you and, and, and preach the word, that it's been ever so clearer to me that it's during those times that seems that uh, Satan um, tries to dig in and thwart our thoughts, our minds, our hearts away from serving him and speaking on his behalf, his word to his people. Um, as I prepared today, um, I chose, I guess for me, a little bit more unorthodox passage of scripture that uh, we normally would go out of the New Testament. This, this morning I'm going to be preaching from the Old Testament, but praise the Lord that Jesus of the New Testament is the same Jesus of the Old Testament. He's the same God. He was, he is, and forever will be, so nothing has changed. Uh, most people um, prefer, they seem to think that the Jesus of the New Testament was a kinder, meeker, gentler God than the Jesus of the Old Testament, but then they need to read Revelation and a few verses from the New Testament and realize he is the same God. He is Jesus. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Um, I couldn't help but think um, this morning about um, things that, the overall theme, I guess, of, of this sermon would be um, things that we idolize. Uh, things that we place before God, whether we realize it or not. Um, I know myself, I've, I felt, uh, I don't know, um, chastised that as I started preparing for this, um, those things seem to keep popping up, those things that, um, that you place before, before God. It's my hope and my prayer that each one of you each day reads the Word. Um, the entire complete word. Um, it's never been any more clear to me as I was preaching from the Old Testament this morning that how all the, the books, we, we think of them as 66 separate incidences within Scripture when they all flow together as, as one story, one story of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the title of my sermon this morning is A Faith Stronger Than Fire. Um, I, I, I think our how little my faith can be sometimes when things aren't going my way and, and we, we like to um, put ourselves down or, or think lesser than ourselves. And as I said before, um, before I started, that, um, that a lot of times we get distracted by the things of Satan or things that, that are placed in our way. And, and I kept, it kept coming back to me that, you know, Satan, it's almost like he's brought it to my mind that you're a sinner. You're not worthy to stand before God's people to preach his word and indeed he's right I am a sinner and indeed he's right I am unworthy but you see it's, it's not of me it's of him I'm just a messenger I'm just a tool that he's used to preach his word and he has, he has blessed me oh so much because each time that I study and prepare I believe I'm the benefactor more than anyone else that's here um, as way of introduction I wanted to kind of go back and remind you of, um, of a story that covers a good bit of Genesis, um, the story of um, Joseph. Um, we all know the story of Joseph pretty well. He was the 11th of 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob. Um, we know that his, his brothers disliked Joseph very much because he was so loved by his father Jacob, it seemed like more than the others. 
And um, in fact, he was he had the coat of the the, the many colors, the colorful coat the, that was given to him. And and there were many things that caused his brothers to have a um, an unliking for for Joseph. Uh, Joseph didn't help himself out very much either, as he had these dreams and as he related it to to his brothers that basically it said that um, that they would be in a subservient role to him, even the moon and the stars. And so as you can imagine, if you have brothers, especially if you had, you know, if you were 11 of 12, that the, you might not be um, taken as, um, you might not be treated so kindly. And so as you, as you know the story, that, that they made the plan as they were out shepherding the, the sheep, and they made the plan to, to actually kill Joseph. And as God's will and sovereignty works out, of course, that didn't come to be, but that he was taken captive and eventually led, ended up in Egypt. And um, as, as you would have it, it just seems that, that you never in this whole story hear Joseph um, complain or gripe or blame God for his circumstances. He seems always to keep going. His mind is set towards heaven. His mind is set forth towards serving God in whatever the circumstances may be. You see, God is immutable. Um, he doesn't change, but we change. And the one thing that I, I love about the story of Joseph is he's a man, he was, a, and, and we got to realize too, I think often we forget when we read these stories that he wasn't really a grown man in a sense. He was a, he was a young guy, fairly young. And now he was put in place in all these uh, circumstances, yet time and time again with temptations to sin against God, he refuses he refuses to defile himself while placed in the presence of temptation with Potiphar's wife. Remember, as he, he flees, he runs. He never curses or defames the God of heaven for his predicament in life. He's thankful. And ultimately, God uses Joseph to save his people during the time of famine in Egypt. See, there was a plan for Joseph. And there's a plan for you and I. As we think our lives are insignificant, you don't know, you never know who's watching you, who's listening to you, who's around you, that you have um, a persuasive bit over their lives. And so we're to live godly lives. We're to, we're to not, do not do anything to ruin your testimony. And a lot of times, as being a, a school teacher, um, it worries me a lot of times in, in the way that I, that I speak and say that not that I'm trying to protect me in any kind of way, but that I, want to, I don't want to ruin my testimony before God, that I want to be a good shepherd. And then at the very end of the story, I guess, towards the end, Joseph says this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Those two words, but God, can go before each and every one of our names here today. Because before but God, you were a lost sinner, dead in your sins, worthy of nothing, bound for hell. You were dead. You weren't almost, you weren't just sick, sickly. You weren't stricken with leprosy and, and just an outcast and ostracized. No, you were dead in your sins. You see, Jesus, you see, God had to send the Holy Spirit to give you life. You had to be born again, as we get that phrase, because you were dead. 
So who in here would be a follower of Christ without the words, but God after your name? You see, a lot of trials that we see as negative are placed in our lives by God to make us stronger, to, to put us through the fire, to burn off the dross, to make us usable, to make us worthy to serve him. And so as we continue, um, I've reminded you of this passage in the Old Testament that's actually not the one I'm preaching from on the book of Daniel is um, because it tells of similar circumstances and evidence of what it's like to be a person on fire for the kingdom of God. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You're familiar with this, the greatest commandment. And then the second one is like it. It says, this is the great first commandment. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who in here can truly say at any second that you've loved God with all your might, all your heart, all your strength, with everything you have, with all your being? I don't think I can make it two minutes. And then the second one, to love your brother as yourself. The, favorite, the most favorite word that we all love to hear is what? Our own name. Me. If you don't believe that, you should be a school teacher. You, you, you'll find out real quick that, that kids and even adults love to hear their name called. They want to be recognized. They want to be raised up. They want glory. They want to be put on a pedestal. Okay. When I think about the greatest commandment, one of the first things that comes to my mind is God commanding us not to idolize anything that is not God himself. Anything that is made, that is made has a maker. It's the maker that is to be worshipped and the knee bowed to. In an illustration of this, I, I gleaned from John MacArthur. A lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with John MacArthur. He's a pastor out in the church in California, but he's very well known and, and has many books. He says, he used this illustration in one of his sermons, and I'm borrowing it from him. He says, a very religious man decided that he would purchase a statue of Jesus Christ for his home. Seems like there's a sin right off the bat, but anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> and so he purchased this statue of Christ, brought it home, and he set it on the coffee table in the living room. His wife was somewhat distressed not feeling it went with the decor that was there and removed it and placed it in the den. Later on, the husband moved it again to another area of the house, which finally prompted their youngest child to say, can't you decide what to do with God? That's the question before us today as, we, as, we, as I preach on Daniel and as we study what, what he did and his three friends did is, can you decide what to do with Christ? These young men did. And as I want to point out, they were young men. At the point of, the, you know, we remember, if we go back, um, we know that God used these, um, these other empires within the land of Canaan to punish his people, the Israelites, because of their idolatry, because of their failure to observe the, the, the Sabbath. Remember, the, the, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity a um, hundred or so years before the, the southern kingdom of Judah, called, which was called Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, was taken captive by the Assyrians, if you recall. 
And, and so as, as their punishment, God used these people to punish his own. And, and remember, we have the great prophets like Isaiah that would come forth and prophesy about these judgments. And, and yet they couldn't understand why God would use these people, these, these foul, these unworthy, these very sinful, um, just wicked people to judge them. As you know, there are the chosen people. They were God's people. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord. So now we're going we're to turn. I'm going I'm to read just a small passage from Jeremiah. As Jeremiah and Daniel and a lot of these prophets kind of go, go together during the same time period. Jeremiah says, now there's some names in here that I'm going to do the best I can to pronounce. It's always been my hardest thing to do. And the same thing with, with school children as well nowadays, it seems like. <laughs> now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Peshur, Jekal, the son of Shelemiah, and Peshur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live, the Babylonians. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall be surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Now, note that this message, that Jeremiah is just the messenger. And the message is coming from God himself, for it says, thus says the Lord. So here is the punishment, that they're to go into captivity. That King Nebuchadnezzar, as you recall that, that passage there in Daniel, in Jeremiah, that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and he's going to, he's going to actually besiege Jerusalem several times. There's two or three deportations of where he takes the, uh, the, the, the Jews there, and he takes them into captivity. And it's God's command that they go. He instructs them to go. Now, this time King Zedekiah and all of his officials and a large portion of the Jews, some of them refused to believe the word of the prophet Jeremiah, the spokesperson of God. Um, however, during the first part, the very first deportation, is when the young man Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah obeyed the words of Jeremiah that were given by God, and willingly went into exile. Now, you, th you think about that. Now, these were young men, youths, if you will, and they're being ransacked, they're being taken over by these cruel, unusually just, just more than cruel people, the uh, Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who occupied the land there of Babylon, however you want to call them. They were cruel people, but they obeyed the, the, the law, the, the God's word, they, they went into to captivity. Willingly, you say, well, why willingly? Because thus says the Lord. Now, some of the people, they, they believed that there, there were false prophets there as well who said this was not true, who said that it would only be a short captivity, that they would return fairly quickly. But we know that the years given for their captivity would be around 70 years. And the 70 years come from basically the, to, to restore, to, um, 
to, um, as, a, as a punishment for them not obeying God's command to, to follow the, the Sabbath, to, to honor the Sabbath and, and allow the land to rest. So we have these, these, these young men here. So now we turn to Daniel chapter 1. And as I said, the, the capture of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of many warnings of judgment coming against Israel for breaking the Lord's covenant with them. And so they had violated that, and so they're in punishment. Now we know at this time Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because of King Solomon's son, King Rehoboam's sin. As, as they, they, for whatever reason, they, they couldn't come to an agreement as he, he, he treated his people with, with not respect, but he was, he was not a good king, and so the, the kingdoms are, are split apart. And the northern kingdom is, is carried into exile by the Assyrians around 722 B.C., and Judah is, is destroyed and taken into captivity by the Babylonians and completely destroyed in 586 B.C. So in Daniel chapter 1, 3 through 7, it says, Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the units gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. It's interesting that the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, changed their names. You say, why would he change their names? Because their names were Hebrew names. They were Jewish boys. So he, the king there, he wants to assimilate them into his culture, the Chaldeans, as much as possible. He wants these young men, remember he's asking for the finest, the best of the lot. They're serving his court. They're serving positions in his kingdom. And he wants them to worship the same gods that he worships to have the same mindset that he has and to do the things and, and believe in the things that he believes in. And yet, these young boys, as we will see, do not do that. Even though their names are changed, their hearts are not changed by King Nebuchadnezzar. They stay true to their maker. I wonder as, as we go through life, and our names may not be changed per se, but our jobs and our maybe even our um, way in life or maybe it's your financial doings, it might be whatever. Our lives are changed in certain ways and sometimes our hearts change with them. You see, we are a circumstantial people. We seem to change very easily. Things sway us. But these young youths here, these Hebrew boys, stay true to the God, their maker. Now remember, too, 
that these young boys did not have the New Testament and the scripture that we have before us during this time. They knew the law, of course. They knew some of what the old prophets taught. They, they knew a good bit, but they didn't know Jesus as we know Jesus of the New Covenant. So it's, it's, it's kind of very astonishing to me how obedient these young men were. So the narrative mentions just four men, but doubtless many more had their names changed as well as they were assimilated into this culture. Daniel, I, I was looking at the, the, the meanings of their names. Daniel meaning in the Hebrew, God will judge, as he had his name changed to Belteshazzar, protect the life of the king. Azariah, meaning God has helped, his name was changed to Abednego, and which kind of means the God of wisdom. Hananiah, grace of God in the Hebrew, had his name changed to Shadrach, which was a command of, of one of the gods there that they worshipped of the moon. And Mishael, which means who is God, had his name changed to Meshach, which means the shadow of the prince. So their names are changed to remove the testimony of God that they were to carry. In chapter 4.8, Nebuchadnezzar commented that Daniel was given a new name after the name of my God. Hmm. So the first point in, in going through all this is kind of two-pronged, but it's of obedience and faith. And when I first wrote this out, I, I had obedience listed first and then faith listed second. And then after a little bit of, of thought, I realized I had it backwards. Faith comes before obedience. Um, we know that it says, by faith Abraham obeyed. You see, once we have faith in Christ, then we have obedience in Christ. We do the things of Christ. And it's not a, something that we abhor, a thing that we see as a duty. It's because if Christ resides within you, then you are of Christ and you want to do the things of Christ. You want to please your maker. It's, it's your natural instinct then to want to please God. So here are four Jewish young men set off into captivity by the wicked Babylonians because God commanded them to do. So this, they were, came and they, were, they were taken into captivity, but God commanded them to go willingly. And so the Jews are being judged because of their wickedness and idolatry. So the, the second part of it is they didn't go as, as others, but as true and faithful followers of Yahweh. That's the reason they went. It's because they were commanded. They were obedient to God's verdict of punishment for the idolatry of Israel and went into captivity in a foreign land to a cruel and unpredictable despot ruler. Note this, they went, but they went as God's remnant, as true followers of God, their deliverer, savior, and hope. They didn't go as being abandoned by God. They went as obedient followers of God. Sometimes God sends us places that we may look and think it's more of a punishment, but we can't see the big picture that through this, through wherever it is that God wants you to be or what he wants you to do, that he's going to use you. And it may be evident off, right, right offhand, or it may be years, or it may not even be in your lifetime when the fruit that's going to come of it bears to be. And so we're to be obedient to God. 
They were to be, remember the Israelites, they were to be lights of the world. Um, in Isaiah 49, 6, just, I'll just read just a small portion of that. It, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, just as King Nebuchadnezzar did. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. King Nebuchadnezzar eventually prostrated himself. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. You see, we know later on in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, as he vacillated back and forth, as some of these um, dreams he has had were, were, um, trans, were, were given their meaning by Daniel, and then he would bow to God, and then it wouldn't take long before he was back being King Nebuchadnezzar again. But eventually he gets his attention, right? We know the story of where he's where there for, for seven years, where he's, he's, taken, he's, he's taken out of his kingdom, and, and he's, he lives in the, in the woods, basically, eating grass, and, and um, his, his mind and his thoughts had left him. And then he realizes he humbles himself before the God Almighty and realizes that he's not God, that God is God. So, if you place your complete faith in your faith, and this is one thing that I just wrote that, I was just thinking that, it, you know, and I just wrote down, it just, it just came to mind at this point. If you place your faith in your fellow man, if any of you were to place your faith in me, um, I promise you one thing, you'll always be disappointed. Because I'll never live up to be whom you need me to be. I'm a sinner, but I'm not God. So you will be disappointed. Have faith in the only one that's, of perfection, Jesus Christ, the only one that can bring to be what you need to be. So point two is, the word of God is the only command you are to follow. Remember it said, thus says the Lord. Whenever you see that thus says the Lord, you need to do whatever follows it. In which the three young men there, the four, they, they did. The false prophets had prophesied a short deportation and that Jerusalem wouldn't be totally destroyed. Remember King Zedekiah, he kind of vacillated between um, Jeremiah and, and, and what his um, other officials were telling him. And eventually he stays in Jerusalem. And do you, I don't know if you remember, to, I'm trying to think real hard, I'm trying to remember what happened to King Zedekiah. Eventually he tries after the Jerusalem is being besieged by the Babylonians. He and a group of his other officials try to escape they get ran down and caught, and he's taken back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and his eyes are put out. But before that, all of his sons and, all of his, and several, all of his officials there were put to death, and his eyes are put out, and he's kept in captivity. Seems like he should have followed the command, thus says the Lord. He should have been obedient. So the word of God is the only command you are to follow. And just here's the, the excerpt I was mentioning. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God tells them to build houses and live in them. 
He says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name, I did not send them, declares the Lord. So we, we know a lot about Daniel and his ordeals with King Nebuchadnezzar. We know that they were sent there and they were to multiply. They weren't to go there as mere captives. They were to go there and, and to thrive as, as, as his group of people, to continue to worship him because God had a promise for them and God's not a God that breaks his promises. They are to go back to Jerusalem. In around 70 years, they will rebuild Jerusalem. Now, it may not be in its splendor as, as King Solomon had it built, but as we'll learn as we keep going through the Old Testament into the New, the temple ends up not being a building anyway, right? Jesus is the temple. The temple resides in us through the Holy Spirit. And as we hear a lot about Israel these days and the geopolitical deals that are going on and as they're trying to rebuild the temple or they want to, and they're trying to restart the sacrificial system, we know that that's blasphemy against our Lord and Savior. For Jesus said, remember, he, he said he would, he would destroy this building, and in three days he would raise it up. He was speaking of himself, not the physical building. Even his own disciples at the time did not understand. So, but as they go into captivity... Daniel, he explains these dreams to the king, and as you go through, chapter 2 speaks a lot of what Daniel did. The king had a dream, and um, he had a dream of this, this, um, of this thing that was made of gold and silver. It was of a, of a man, of a figure, and of course it could have been of a god that they worshipped, but more than likely, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had it built to resemble himself to be honored himself, and they were to bow and to worship it. And remember, if he told them that at, at the sound of all these instruments and when the music plays, they were to bow down and to worship this, this image. And, and of course, Daniel, um, he says, and, and he calls in all of his um, sorcerers and seers and such, the king does, because he, he doesn't know the interpretation of it. And he asks them and he tells them to tell them the actual dream and the interpretation. Of course, in return, they say that, that it's impossible. No one's ever done that, that they couldn't do so. And so eventually Daniel comes in, this, this, this young man, this youth of God, and he gives the, the interpretation. He gives the dream and its interpretation. And so, so Daniel and, and his friends are placed in high positions there in the kingdom. They were looked favorably upon. Now, I can imagine the other officials there that were, of, that were true Babylonians, Chaldeans, probably didn't think too, too well of that either, the same as Joseph's brothers didn't think too well of him when he was praised above his brothers. So we are, the second point was the word of God is the only command we are to follow. And that's what Daniel is doing because, remember, Daniel tells the king, when, when the king praises Daniel and offers him all these rewards, 
Daniel tells him, he says, it's, it wasn't I that, that gave these interpretations to you. He said, but it was the God I serve. He said, it's the God in heaven that gave these interpretations. But nonetheless, he, he gave it. And so, if we move on in point three, not only should your obedience be inward, but it should be outward as well. Not only inward, but outward. You see, the light of God can't be hidden. If the Holy Spirit resides within you, then the unbelieving world will notice. You see, Daniel and his friends, they were, they were noticed right offhand, weren't they? Remember when they first got there, they were deported, and they first got there, and the king ordered that they were to be educated for three years, and they were given the choicest food and the best wine to drink. And what does Daniel say? Because he didn't want to defile himself with, these, with this food of the king. He tells the, one of the king's helpers, he says, um, give us vegetables to eat. He says, we, we, I, we won't defile ourselves with eating the king's food. And he says, and give us ten days to see and to come back and check and see if we're not who we say we'll be, that we'll be that we'll be we'll look better than the ones that you're giving this fine food to. And so the the the, the person placed over them obviously would be a little worried because if he comes back and the king checks on these young men whom he's chosen, well that's going to be his head on the block. But as as he finds out when they come back these young men have thrived. God has blessed them. And so the light of the world, do your companions, do your acquaintances, work colleagues, church brothers and sisters truly know that you're a disciple of Christ? Can they see the light in you? Do you stand out? Do you differ from the people around you who are not Christians? Can people that know you very well, do they know you are a Christian, a follower of Christ Jesus? Or do you just merely fit in? Do you just kind of sort of um, on Sundays play the part and then Monday through Saturday um, just follow along with the rest of the world? Is there anything different about you? As they are with Daniel and his three brothers. And then finally, he says in chapter 3, he says, Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, he says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that, remember, they wouldn't bow to this image. They wouldn't when the flute and the, the, the trigon and all those different instruments that I'm not sure what they looked like and what they were when they were played, they didn't bow the knee to them. Remember, the, the, king, the king Nebuchadnezzar gave the verdict he, that they were all to bow down. And of course, everyone noticed that these young men didn't do so, and obviously they reported it to the king pronto. I'm sure they were jealous for the positions that they had. And so once King Nebuchadnezzar finds out, he's in a furious rage. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He says, now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. So he gives them a second chance, if you will. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? 
Seems like King Nebuchadnezzar puts God to the test. He says, and who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? My fourth final point is, we're not to presume upon God's grace. We're not to presume upon God's grace to grant you the gifts, but rather have faith that his grace would never fail you to give you him. You see, these young men are standing there faced with the prospect of death, immediate death. As a matter of fact, once they're thrown into the furnace because they do not bow down to the king's image, the, the men that he commands to throw them into the fire, they die, they lose their own lives. It's heated up uh, so much greater than it normally was because the king was so furious. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so we're not to presume upon God. And then in verses 16, moving on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But here's that but God part, that, that, that conjunction but. Verse 18, but if not, be it known to you. O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, what faith, what obedience, what these, these young men, it's the third point, following the word of God, obeying his commands. They have all these things. They do not presume upon God. Of course, their prayers is not to be thrown into the furnace and burn up and killed there on the spot. I don't know if anybody in here wants to just jump into a burning furnace to, to prove a point, but they weren't doing it to prove a point. They were doing it because they had a love and they knew a love of their maker, God, Jesus Christ. And so they declined. They, they refused the king's order. These four Jewish youths had faith in God and not, what, and not in the things that the world offers. You know, there's all things, there's many things that they could have proposed that they could have said, you know, we ought to bow down and do as he says because God could probably use us later on. If, you know, if we're killed and we're, 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 we're done with right now, then what good will we be for our people over the years in captivity? There's, there's many things that they could have rationalized why they shouldn't be thrown into this fiery furnace. I'm thinking that if I was standing there in front of that fiery furnace, I'd have been doing a lot of things trying to justify why I shouldn't be thrown in. But these young men, these youths, these three, they, they don't hesitate, do they? They, they, they? they tell the king right up front that they're not going to. And it, and it reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, now if this has ever been true for a group of people, it's true for these three young men. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, and ben, Pastor Ben's preached on this, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Remember, there was a fourth person in that fiery furnace that the king noticed, and I suppose it was Jesus himself. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These young men found it that day, did they not? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? If these young men were given the whole kingdom of Babylon, what good would it have been? It's of nothing. If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And I, I, had to, I couldn't speak this morning without giving at least one, one little bit of, um, of, of credence or, or, or something from, from my favorite pastor of old, Charles Spurgeon. Um, it's called Be Sold Out for Christ. And, and he gives this, this excerpt about when he, was, when he first, before he got married, about his fiancée. And he says this, and it says, just before he got married, this is Charles Spurgeon, he picked up his fiancée to take her to a place where he was going to preach. Now, most people, when they pick up their fiancées today, they usually aren't going to a place where the word is going to be preached, much less he himself. And the two of them got separated in the crowd, and they were kind of lost, and thousands of people were pushing in to hear him preach. And so he pushed himself up to the platform. After the meeting was over, he couldn't find her anywhere. Man, can you imagine picking up your fiancé and taking her somewhere, and the first thing you do is you lose her? And not only that, you seem to not have much care in the world until it's all over. You can imagine what she's thinking. So, he just, so after the meeting was over, he couldn't find her anywhere, so he just went over to her house. And he found her there, and she was pouting. Imagine that. And she said, Charles, you left me in that crowd all along, and you weren't even concerned where I was. Spurgeon replied, I'm sorry, but perhaps what happened was providential. I didn't intend to be impolite, but whenever I see a crowd like that waiting for me to preach, I'm overwhelmed with the sense of responsibility. I forgot all about you. Now let's get one thing straight, he says. It would have to be a rule of our marriage that the command of my master comes first. You shall have the second place. He says, are you willing as my wife to take second place while I give first place to Christ? And well, wonderfully, she was willing and became a faithful wife. What a man after God's own heart. What, what, what a man of Christ is... We know of Charles Spurgeon as he preached to thousands there. And as we've given this little anecdote about Charles and, and his fiancée and eventually become his wife, are you as sold out for Christ as Charles Spurgeon was and just losing his fiancée in the crowd there, or just as much as these three young men as they are when they decline to bow down to this golden image and to, to, to be thrown into this fiery furnace? And to even have the thought to say, you know, we know that our God, we have a God that can physically, in the flesh, save us from this fire. He can make this go away. He can save us. But if not, very well, we still will, we will remain faithful to our God. And we will we refuse to bow down to your image. How many of us out here are sold out to Christ in such a way as that. So as I, as I leave this morning, as I 
um, finish up in closing the three things going back to, that, that I really wanted to hone into this morning. I know it seems to me it's kind of kind of got wrapped around a little bit, but preaching from the historical text as I was trying to cover three chapters there, but there's three things I wanted you to get from that, mainly. First is to have obedience through your faith from Christ Jesus. You have faith and obedience follows, but that obedience cannot be changed. That obedience cannot be um, tampered with by anything of this world or anything this world has to offer or any threat or any, any type of persecution that this world may have that we remain loyal to the one that gives us life eternal because this world is fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. I'm almost a half a century years year old. Pastor Bill, he's almost, a, well, not that far. Three quarters, I'll say. <laughs> and as well as we can, we can all attest, all of us, we know that time goes by, that time is... Is, is not on our side here and of this world. But, but when we think about it in terms of eternity, how we, as, as the Apostle Paul says, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, how much more we have, how much more we're rewarded with, how much better it is to be with Christ for eternity than anything, anything that this world here can offer. I mean, there's just nothing. And so then the second thing is to, how do we get that? How do we come to that faith and that obedience? The second point was to, to believe in his commands and his words, to read his word, to know his word, to have it inscribed upon your heart as these young men, these young Hebrew boys had to have. I mean, just think about the faith that they had to have to stand in front of that fiery furnace and to be thrown in without quivering, without having any doubt whatsoever that their God is a God who saves. And so with that, I, I leave you. I, I pray that you've been blessed in some way. I, I know that I have. Um, I always say that I'm, I'm more blessed of anybody in the room when, when I'm given the opportunity to stand up in front of you because there's a, there's a deeper sense of... Um, it's not just of um, reading the book, the, the, the word, but it's, 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 a, it's truly relying upon the Holy Spirit to lead you in the direction that God wants you to go. Um, and I think that's the struggle sometimes when I prepare, is I have something in mind and I try to, I try to give it direction on my own. And then I get running around in circles and then Usually it's about 10 seconds before I stand up that the Holy Spirit says, no, this is, this is what I want you to say. And a lot of times I deviate from, from what I've written, but the Lord is, is, has blessed us this morning. There's, there's a lot of people in this world that do not have the opportunity to stand in a church with brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to the word or read the word being preached and worship without great persecution. But the thing about persecution is a lot of times it's not such a bad thing. Sometimes it can be a good thing because it spreads the word. It makes us stronger in our beliefs. I believe that God really can't use us sometimes until we've been placed in times of persecution. We need that dross burned off. We need those worldly things burned away so that what he's left with 
is a heart that's true and faithful and obedient to him. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this morning. Father, forgive me for my mumbling and, and roundabout way of saying things, for it may have seemed to be incoherent at times. But Father, as I'm listening through my ears, as I'm judging through worldly standards, Father, I know that, as in Romans 8, that, that Father, that, that you offer up, that the Holy Spirit intervenes where we cannot, when we don't, do not have the words to say, Father. And I, I pray that, that through this preaching, through this reading of your word today, that there's someone, somewhere, that, Father, that your Holy Spirit will have an effect upon their heart. And for those that are already in Christ, that their, that their faith will be strengthened this morning, Father. That it would be stronger. And that those little things in this world that hinder us from giving you honor and glory in, in the face of this world would be taken away, Father. That we'll have no doubt, we'll have no hesitation as those four Hebrew boys. That we will stand for you in the face of the most dire circumstances, Father, and that we will glorify thy name. In Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.